Hi, Bill. How are you doing today? Robin, it feels like decades since we've spoken. I'm doing good, man. How about yourself? I'm doing great. And it has been a little while. But as sure. you know, end of quarter, everybody's busy. People are chasing. Inboxes are overfilling. And your Zoom meetings are just filling up the calendar. So oh, it's yeah. nice to start Q3 with some happiness, some smiles. And once again, seeing your beautiful face to tell oh, us my. all things security. Oh. <laughs> Likewise, Robin. <laughs> so tell me, Bill, what do you have for us today? Wow, Robin. So June 29th. Not that long ago, it almost felt like the day the earth stood still. Fortunately, that, that wasn't the case. But we received some news that the Lockbit Ransomware Group, you've probably heard of them, right, Robin? Maybe. Yeah, we've covered Lockbit a few times in the past. We certainly for have. The, for those who aren't aware, who are Lockbit? Well, Actually, no, so yeah, we'll, start, we'll start definitely a high level before we dive in. Yeah, no, we'll, we'll definitely <laughs> dig in on that. But Lockbit, largest ransomware group. They have a leak site where they claimed an attack, and the attack that they claimed was that they had attacked TSMC. Now, even if you don't know who TSMC is, and we'll explain that, the request for ransom was 70 million US dollars, one of the biggest requests Whoa. ever. But TSMC could could uh, could potentially afford to pay for it. So for those who aren't aware, TSMC is the Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company. Now, that's a mouthful. Who are they? What do they do? Well, they're they're actually the most valuable semiconductor company in the world. I, I think the 2023 revenue numbers looked somewhere around 74 billion U.S. dollars for the year. And they hold, just this one company, Robin, holds 53% of the semiconductor market. Now, Whoa. somebody that you and I both respect quite a bit, Robin, when the news of this came out, I love how they phrased it. They said, this is pretty much an attack on critical infrastructure. Why on earth would he have said that, Robin? Why, why do you think that? Well, semiconductors, think of how many technological things you use every day. You know, right. you might be thinking iPhones or Xboxes, but medical equipment, road tra um, signals, you have aircrafts, you have key infrastructure that's required to transmit around the world. If you have no semiconductors, you have no trucks. If you have no trucks, I'm sorry, you're not getting your Twinkies delivered to you on time. And that has a rippling effect That's a problem. agriculture and everywhere else. Right. You need your Twinkies. They're important. You need your Twinkies, 100%. <laughs> yeah, and, and so it, it really is critical infrastructure from the perspective that it touches so much. And when you realize that this company holds 53% of the semiconductor market, it is indeed a massive potential attack. So what I wondered if we could talk about today, Robin, was, and, and since we've mentioned Lockbit multiple times, I wondered if maybe we step into a high-level overview of how this thing actually works. How does the group work? How does their malware work? And then maybe we can talk a little bit about TSMC and what happened during this attack. What do you think? Does that, that work for you? That sounds fantastic. So let's start right at the beginning. Who are Lockbit and where can I find them? <laughs> so Lockbit is the number one ransomware group, as we mentioned before. In fact, by a long distance. Robin, we talked on our last episode about CLOP. And Klopp is certainly one of the heavy hitters in, in the, uh, the, the ransomware world. In fact, 
latest statistics I saw is they were hovering somewhere around number three or number four. Lockbit magnitudes larger. Absolutely huge ransomware group. It's it's kind of hard to nail down where they're from, as we've discussed in the past. We do have some things that we try to do from a linguistic analysis standpoint, looking at code and so forth. But what we do know is how their malware manifests. And I think what I'll do is I'll kind of walk our listeners through what that looks like. And I'll keep it very high level, Robin, I promise, because this is I could geek out on this all day. I know you could too, right? But essentially, there are nine high level steps that this malware uses. And, and I, I want to kind of walk through each of them. Sound good? Yeah, that sounds fantastic. So tell right, me about the, the Apple of ransomware. Let's, let's yeah. run through it. <laughs> it's a good way to put it. And, and, and they will do it as a service. So <laughs> step one that they will typically undertake is obviously that entry. And there's multiple ways that they tend to get into the environment. It could be phishing emails. It could be drive-by downloads. Any way that they can do to compromise an endpoint. So this is your end user. We always talk about this, Robin, and, and the, the threat vector of the, uh, the meat suit, so to speak, right? The individual behind the keyboard, that's typically where they try to enter. Now, step two, and this is very typical, is they will try to steal credentials. And they, they typically use two tools. One of them is LSASS, which is a native uh, tool within the Microsoft framework. But I bet you can almost guess the other little piece of malware that they use in order to try to steal credentials. Any any guesses, Robin? Ooh, by any chance, would it be uh, ooh, maybe some Mimikatz to do some uh, you, privilege escalation? You are a genius. Absolutely, oh. Mimikatz. <laughs> <laughs> and so really, if if you're listening to this, this episode, please take a look at Mimikatz. It is so absurdly easy to use to be able to pull credentials out of memory. So that is step two, right? Get a hold of those credentials. And of course, once they have those credentials, step three is they begin the process of lateral movement because chances are really high, Robin, that whatever is on the endpoint, that's not really what they're interested in, right? They want to get into the good stuff. So couple methodologies that they will use for lateral movement. One of them is PS exec. You're familiar with PS exec, Robin? I indeed I am. But for those who are not familiar, what's PS exec? Yeah, PS exec is part of the sysinternals set of tools. Sysinternals is free for download. Just a great set of tools for Windows uh, sysadmins. But what PS exec allows me to do is to execute commands remotely. So that's one way that they'll do it. And then, of course, the other one, the simplest one, almost like living off the land, is to use RDP, right? Remote desktop mm -hmm. protocol and be able to start moving through the different elements within the environment in the hopes that you're going to get to where the good stuff is. So that's step three. Mm -hmm. Step four is that they now need to escalate their privileges. They need to get more dangerous. They may have stolen an end user's credentials. Now they need to try to escalate their privileges. And I'm just curious, Robin, how much you know about Lockbit? What, what's, what's the number one exploit that they use? And I'll give you a hint. It's from 2022. It's a CVE from 2022. Any ideas what it is that they use? Ooh, I'm not so sure on this one. Yeah, what, a, what do they obscure. use? It's obscure. Yeah, it's a tricky one. They actually use Spoolful 
You remember that Seriously? one? Seriously. Yeah. It was exploit yeah. number 21999 in 2022. Indeed. And so they use the print spoolers to actually mm-hmm. escalate their privilege. Pretty wild, right? Yes, yes. I mean, printer code pretty much stopped getting developed in the 90s, but it's always <laughs> causing problems. So That's even right. if it's not a functional challenge trying to get your paper out, being utilizing the spooler function to escalate privileges, that's scary. It's it's pretty interesting, yeah. And it, it just has to do with the vulnerability in, in spooling where mm-hmm. they're able to suddenly gain administrative uh, or administrator level uh, access. Then step five, once they have that increased access, is that, of course, they try to establish persistence. So they'll use net.exe to established domain level credentials, if that's at all possible. Now they have a persistent elevated login that they're able to utilize and and begin to execute. So we move on to step six, which means it's malware time. Now we have to talk about bringing that malware in. And what they do is they actually decrypt their malware in small pieces. So Mm -hmm. they'll decrypt individual functions as they progress through these stages. Why? Well, we want to evade anti-malware engines. That's that's always Mm -hmm. something that we want to do. But now we've kind of hit a critical point where they're now going to attempt to drop the anti-malware. So wherever they live, they're about to unencrypt a whole lot more that would typically trigger an anti-malware engine. So they're going to try to drop Mm -hmm. it wherever that point is that they they may happen to be. That's step six for them as they, they try to kill those processes. Now, once mm-hmm. they're successful in doing that, and again, it's assuming that they are, step seven is that they establish their, their C2 tunnel, their command and control. That's not only for purposes of being able to control the malware, Robin, but that's also the method that they'll use to begin to steal the data because mm-hmm. single extortion is not enough for LockBit. It's not just a matter of encrypting and taking your money. They're also going to steal your data at the same time. So that's step seven, right? They established that tunnel. Step eight, Robin, is, boy, what what an interesting approach. In step eight, it's actually broken into two parts. Before it executes the, the encryption and the stealing in step eight, it checks what language the system is using. Ooh, Isn't that nice. interesting? That's, that's, and, lovely. that's lovely. Yeah. And so as you can imagine, there, there are a whole bunch of languages. If it finds out that it's the primary language, say Azerbaijani or Russian or any number, uh, there's a list that's publicly available. The malware will cease if it finds that the, that is the primary language. Sounds pretty targeted, right? It but after it, after it does that language check, that's when it begins the process in parallel of not only stealing and the way they steal the data is with SteelBit to exfiltrate. And the encryption that they use is actually something that everybody's familiar with, AES encryption or ECC encryption, just depending on how fast they want to go. But they begin that process. And once that process begins to wrap up, step eight starts finishing. And you know that step eight is finished because suddenly you start seeing wallpapers. Right. So there's the wallpaper that says, congratulations, you've been compromised. You need to log on to such and such and make this payment. And there's any number of methods that they use. They'll even work through brokers for uh, for ransomware payment. In our case, again, 70 million U.S. dollars. And then finally, step nine, of course, it's time for the cover up. 
right? So you stomp all the event logs, you make sure that there's no shadow backup copies on the file systems, make sure you get rid of everything, get rid of any of the evidence in the logs of when it happened and where it came from and all that good stuff. So that's kind of the entire span. It sounds fairly simple and it does. Uh, you, you'd be, you'd be fooling yourself if you thought it was something that was easy, because again, they use some great encryption techniques to dodge the anti-malware. They're able to take anti-malware down on the endpoint. Not so much if you're in a sassy solution, but if it's on the endpoint, it is able to take it down. And now they're essentially invisible and can, can do their business. Yeah. The greatest feat of any form of software development or engineering is to make things look simple. That's right. If you have a product that takes nine weeks to deploy and configure, that's easy to develop because you're that's getting right. the customer to do all the work. But if you have a solution that it's one click and everything works, that's a lot of development. That's a lot of effort. That's a lot of ugh, frustrated 3am hair pulling from your development team to get to that point. That's right. Now, when it comes to BlockBits, and it, say we're infected one device and we're about to throw up a wallpaper, does that just happen on a per device basis or does the lockbit malware actually spread across the organization and then find a specific quantity of infected devices before ransoming? Because yeah. If you so have one machine, that could alert too soon. Yeah, exactly. And, and that is the essence of the way that they move and work through the environment is trying to get across multiple and really act on their objectives before they give any sign. And, and look, Robin, I'm not trying to get all Lockheed Martin on you, right? You know, I'm a miter guy. <laughs> I enjoy that. I enjoy looking at the behaviors. But even if we take this in a linear fashion, like the Lockheed Martin kill chain, we have so many opportunities to disrupt this kind of attack. We talked mm -hmm. about the entry point and, and stopping phishing by looking at things like the validity of a domain or... Uh, the the endpoints themselves and how do we protect endpoints that may have anti-malware installed on them but the fact is that stuff is mutable on the endpoint how do we protect mm -hmm. the endpoints and detect that there's actually malware that that may happen to be there that, that's 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 one example what about mimi cats mm -hmm. running maybe maybe that's a problem. We don't expect that to be running. We can catch it there. What about the lateral movement? We have east-west traffic that's taking place, like you said, trying to compromise numerous devices before we ever throw up the, the wallpaper that says what's going on, and so mm -hmm. on and so on, Robin. We've just got so many opportunities here to yeah. stop this in its tracks. But again, if if we if we don't have that comprehensive view, if we aren't taking that that behavioral view, right? This is me trying to rescue myself from Lockheed Martin. <laughs> but if we don't take that that behavioral view and realize there's multiple points, multiple data sources, multiple mitigations, we're going to fall victim to this, and it's very very effective. Look, there's a reason they're number one, so it's mm -hmm. very effective in in what it's doing. But we do have to take a much more comprehensive view, not simply wait until all of a sudden we we hear command and control traffic coming out. Boy, you're you're awful far to the right of that minor attack framework at that point. <laughs> you may be in trouble. <laughs> so if we were to take a step back, imagine you are just setting up a company or, or you've just joined as CIO as a company and you're looking at your estate. What security appliances, what mitigation methods, what software would you need to protect against this? And I'm going to ignore Sassy for now. Let's look at legacy vendors. What's needed to prevent each stage of this kill chain? 
Oh my goodness. Yeah. So you're, you're talking multiple elements. So of course you're looking at an appliance that can serve a firewall function, a secure web gateway function. You're going to have to have an intrusion prevention or detection device. That appliance is going to have to sit in there somewhere. Hopefully they're, they're merged together into that single firewall appliance, but not necessarily. So, you know, there's this, Mm -hmm. this thought of, I'm going to go best of breed. And, and I love the thought behind best of breed converged best of breed is the best, but if you're going to go individual best of breed, you know, best of luck correlating things like logs and behaviors and so forth. So you're going to need that portion. You're going to need endpoint protection and and awareness there. You're going to need, I mean, the the list goes on and on Robin, in in terms of the things we're going to need. And and it's not just a single appliance that you're going to need. You're, You're going to need something for the North South. You're going to need something for the east west uh and and you're you're in addition to anti malware on endpoints are you are you able to do let's let's call it xdr the way that the industry does are you able to monitor for processes that shouldn't be spinning up or or abnormal behaviors in the amount of traffic that's being generated pretty soon robin you're managing a whole bunch of different interfaces you're managing a whole bunch of different log files and you know to think that you're going to have, bring in a sim for example, so yet another mm-hmm. tool you're going to have to put in your tool chest to try to correlate and rationalize all these different tools. Uh, yeah, you've got a pretty significant investment in defense in depth, let alone the education that you're going to need to do. Because again, all of these tools aren't talking. They may not be looking at things from a behavioral standpoint. And human beings are incredibly innovative, incredibly. Mm-hmm. So yeah, in, in the traditional framework, Robin, you're you're looking at multiple, multiple tools to, to build that defense and depth to protect. And Lockbit knows this. They know this. And that's why they're so very effective because they combine very effective living off the land techniques. They have tool sets that are well known, like Mimi Cats and Steelbit, right? All of these are very effective. They're proven. They work. They're able to dodge the malware. They decrypt on the fly. So it's the old signature based IOCs approach, not so effective against that. So yeah, if you're trying to build all of this piecemeal again with the best intentions of doing best of breed, you're really going to find yourself in a place where they're, they're pretty, pretty adept at dodging all of that. I guess that's the best way I can put it. So if you're a CIO that stepped into an organization where your security team have all the gear but no idea, what would you recommend to that CIO? Oh, uh, ibuprofen. <laughs> there's there's going to be a <laughs> lot of headaches, Robin. Uh, certainly, it, it's there's ramp time. It's it's very difficult. And again, if I if I leave aside the simplification that a converged unified SASE solution brings. It really is going to almost be a case of, you know what, we're going to we're going to have to disruptively lock the door until we start getting much, much more familiar. Now, we know the businesses simply can't do that. They can't do that. You're going to pay for consultancy. You're, you're going to have to bring any number of folks in and try to ramp the team. It's it's a disaster. It, 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 it's, a, it's a potential disaster. I should put it that way. Certainly from a CIO's perspective you've really got a mountain to tackle in front of you. And and so I think that's when it makes sense to start investigating what are the benefits that a, a true unified single vendor SASE solution can bring. But I, again, I don't want to get too much of a commercial there. 
but, but I really would <laughs> recommend sitting down and considering that. No, it's similar to Lockbit. A true unified single vendor SASE puts a lot of effort into making that user experience easy. Yeah, they so do. I, I've seen tons of folks out there, security practitioners, network architects, uh, solutions architects, and they spend such a considerable amount of time just building and connecting and trying to identify the gaps. You're if you right. go to most SOCs, uh, security operation centers, you'd see like 14 screens on the wall with red lights flashing everywhere. Impressive. And most of the time when there's a breach, when there's a ransomware event or an encryption event, all the logs were already there. All of the data points, all of the ev records of evidence and indicators of compromise, they existed. That's right. Just the teams were disjointed. Their tools and technologies were spread out and they didn't have the time or the cycles to actually find the events, correlate them together and identify why is this important. That's right. People spend far too much time maintaining and monitoring the tools and ensuring that patches and upgrades are all working instead of actually looking at the data and focusing on what happens, which is where exactly. a single vendor SASE approach is the best because it's all unified. It has that shared context everywhere. And if Lockbit comes knocking, well, you know, somebody like Cato will protect you without having to do anything at all. Most definitely. Most definitely. So, so here we were, right? That's, that's kind of Lockbit's thing. And, and so <laughs> go back to June 29th, <laughs> the announcement happens. Here's Lockbit and TSMC uh, is, is being extorted for 70 million US dollars. Mm -hmm. So, so what happened? Right. So of course, TSMC investigates and they come back relatively quickly and say, actually, we were not breached. It was our IT supplier. Interesting. Okay. So okay. Kinmax is the name of the IT supplier, uh, again, a, a, a company from Taiwan. And Kinmax actually supplies things like compute and uh, you know, networking, storage, cloud, all the different IT services. And TSMC is one of their large customers. As you, you can imagine, it's, they're, they're probably <laughs> a pretty large customer. And the data that was actually stolen upon further investigation was from Kinmax. And it was the details, not only for TSMC's uh, servers, but multiple customers, the, the initial setup and configuration documentation for for you know the the servers now that might not sound like anything too terribly disastrous but boy it's that's pretty that's pretty effective from a, a footprinting fingerprinting perspective right mm -hmm. for for threat actors to have that data uh, yeah. it, it can give them at least a, a little bit of a starting point without having to do excessive discovery for for actually penetrating the environment but what TSMC indicated was that they immediately terminated the data exchange connectivity to Kinmax. And as they, as they said it in the quote, if memory serves, Robin, they said that they terminated the data exchange according to standard operating procedures. Well, we'll probably should come back to that. But what immediately came to my mind once this began to unfold, of course, was Target back in 2013. Right. Mm -hmm. Here we are again with yeah. a <laughs> data exchange partner, so to speak, and them being compromised and attempting to get in. But TSMC says, no, they didn't actually get in. It was our comp, our partner that was compromised. Uh, Kinmex uh, indeed says, look, we, we found the vulnerability. We've patched it up, um, issued an apology to 
their customers that were affected. So uh, the valuable fingerprinting information that got out, it still got out. What is that going to result in? You know, do we do we change standard configurations? You know, time will tell. And certainly that's not something that they're going to necessarily broadcast in the news. Here's how we fixed it uh, and, and begin mm-hmm. to talk about the new configurations. But I think there's a few lessons to be derived from this. And, and we've already talked through building these complex defense in depth systems piecemeal, sort of like building an automobile by going to the auto parts stores in your, your surrounding uh, neighborhoods and, and buying them a piece at a time, right? You, you certainly can do that. But apart from that, I think there's a few lessons. First of all, your interconnects with, with partners, whatever your organization happens to work with, they still need to be subject to perimeter security. Mm-hmm. They do. You just can't have that wide open pipeline because threat actors know that compromising, let's call it the supply chain, right? Going down the supply chain and compromising there will give them the potential to get into the ultimate treasure that they're trying to see. So although it was Kinmax that was compromised because TSMC was in there, they got the demands and certainly 70 million US, uh, surely that large multi-billion dollar revenue company can afford such a small uh, ransom to pay. So (laughs) interconnects need perimeter security. That's number one. Lesson number two, have an incident response plan in place to limit the blast radius, right? You heard (laughs) TSMC say it, true or not, according to standard operating procedures, dot, dot, dot. Well, first you have to have standard operating procedures. You may do tabletop exercises for incident response or, or even live exercises with pen testers or, or purple teams or, or whatever your organization happens to use. The point is have a plan in place. What do you mm-hmm. do? That's one of the lessons. And then I think the last lesson, and Robin, I'm going to harp a little bit on this one. I promise I'm going to be short, <laughs> but I harp on this all the time. Zero trust is not just for remote users. I'll say it again, Mm -hmm. not just for remote users. We often talk about zero trust in the the context of work from home, right? Remote workforce, mobile workforce, and everybody says that's what it is. And they even treat it like a VPN, right? That's our zero trust. That is not what zero trust is. Zero trust is a security design philosophy. That means that even with your partners, still have zero trust implemented. So that, that's really kind of the big three that I think we can take out of that. What did I miss, mm-hmm. Robin? I think you missed the fact that cybersecurity that used to be seen as a tech problem is now a business risk and should be seen as a business problem. And cybersecurity it. should be discussed at the board level and yes. all organizations should be focusing on it. Just think, you if you buy a car, of course you buy insurance. Why aren't you going for cybersecurity insurance? Why aren't you investing in cyber teams? Why are you not protecting yourselves? Because it has got to the point where everybody will likely to be breached. And if you think, oh, I'm fine, I'm protected, I'm secure, I'm safe, write yourself a plan of what the heck do you do if everything catches fire? The SOPs, the standard operating procedures, it's critical. I I love this. And you you hit on two things that have really been on my mind lately. The the first one is the discussion at the board level. We have these folks in our industry that we refer to as CISOs or chief information security officers. Mm 
Mm-hmm. And I read a really interesting article recently that that took a look at the role of a CISO and really questioned if the C should be at the beginning of that title. Mm-hmm. Why would you call them chief when they still tend to report up through several layers, which means that cyber discussion is not necessarily happening at the board level, even mm-hmm. though there's a C in that individual's title. So why are we doing that? Shouldn't the CISO report much higher in the organization? If not to the CEO, um, certainly should still have a seat on the board. So that, that's number one, a great article about that recently that I read. And then the second one, uh, an, an article actually came out a few days ago, penned by our own CEO concerning cyber insurance. And we know from a GRC perspective that that that's referred to as risk transference. And unfortunately, we might have gotten a little bit lazy about that because we figure, ah, heck, we'll just transfer the risk to somebody else. Mm -hmm. And we're not thinking about loss of reputation. We're also not thinking about the fact that insurance companies are for-profit businesses. <laughs> so <laughs> there are exclusions, right? There was an example of a, a, a recent breach that took place and the organization tried to make a claim against their insurance. And the insurance company said, no, we're not going to pay it because this was actually an act of war by another state. And that's not covered by your insurance. Sorry. Mm-hmm. So simply using risk transference as an excuse to, to, Boy, I'm trying to be so careful about my words here, Robin. Be lazy. I don't know if that's the right <laughs> words, but but you really need to think before you go into risk transference because sometimes the cost of mitigation on the on the surface may seem like it's it's prohibitive, but when you consider risk transference and how many holes there may actually be in that, you may suddenly find that the spend for mitigation is much much more tolerable and has the side benefit of protecting you from that potential loss of reputation, even though you may have insurance. So the key takeaways are don't get complacent, don't Mm. get lazy, focus on cybersecurity, protect every edge if possible, consolidate your vendors so you don't have so many holes in your network, and then unified a single context across everything so every single one of your employees is looking at the exact same data. Beautifully said. frame of mind. So on that note, Bill, thank you for your time today. And I hope you have a great week. Until next week, Jeff. Thanks, Robin.